Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Ratna Omidvar, is an independent senator from Ontario to the Senate of Canada. She is the author of legislation that is starting to make its way through the Canadian Parliament called the Frozen Assets Repurposing Act. The bill would seize the assets of corrupt and abusive foreign officials and redeploy those assets to the very people harmed by those officials. This includes people displaced by the actions of corrupt and violent regimes. We kick off discussing Senator Omidvar's personal history of displacement before having a longer conversation about the contours of her legislation. We then have an extended discussion about how legislation in Canada can influence other parliaments of liberal democracies around the world. I must say, this is a very interesting discussion about a very worthwhile Canadian initiative. And if you're a parliamentarian around the world who is working on legislation that you think might be of interest and of impact to this globally focused audience of podcast listeners, uh, reach out to me. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. That's how I got in touch with Senator Omidvar for this very fascinating conversation. Also, if you're listening to this episode contemporaneously, it means I'm currently in Ghana on a reporting trip examining the intersection of big data and the sustainable development goals. I should have some episodes from this trip in the near future, so stay tuned. And for now, here is my conversation with Senator Ratna Omidvar. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. When I was uh, much younger, I went to university in West Germany, and I met my uh, partner for life there. He was a foreign student like me. He was from Iran, and after we completed our education, we decided to go live in Iran. This was 1974. I guess we could not have chosen a more exciting or a or a more dangerous time because six short years later, we were forced to pack our bags overnight and flee uh, because if we had stayed in, in Iran, our lives would have been in some significant and immediate danger. So I've always had this this empathy and this concern for people who are uh, who have no choice but to leave their homes because staying becomes... Uh, a real risk to their lives. And and when we left, um, I remember trying to figure out what I could take in the one bag that I could take with me, and it was paralyzing. And I now think instead of the 70 million 
people who are displaced in the world who in one way or the other have an experience much, much, much worse than mine because I was able to get to safety and I was able to come to Canada and and create um, a life for myself and my family, whereas the people who are displaced today in 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 most cases are are bereft of hope and bereft of choice um there are generations that know of no other existence than the existence of displacement and i think this is a problem that is not uh local or regional or national it is a global problem it is a problem for all of us in the world, and we have to do, um, we have to use different ways of addressing the problem, and this is what my proposal is about. So, your experience, as you said, um, informed your decision to table the Frozen Assets Repurposing Act, which will be the, the focus of our, our conversation. So, can you introduce me, introduce listeners to what this act intends to do and what it says? This act will seize the assets of corrupt foreign officials and who have chosen to locate their money in safe jurisdictions like Canada and through a process uh, that will be transparent and, and open and accountable, those assets will be redeployed back to serve the people who have been harmed the most. And in many cases, one can draw a direct line between those who are displaced, their corrupt and violent regimes who have result, who have created the displacement and the corruption of these very same individuals in stealing from the people from the country and placing their assets and safety in a third jurisdiction. So in this way, by following the money, we will hold them accountable and provide a small measure of justice to the people who have been harmed the most. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that your act sort of builds on what's known as the, the Magnitsky Act, um, in that, which was sort of a, a human rights legal movement that was really, I, I think, started here in the United States, uh, but has become a global movement, and, and Canada is it has its own sort of version of, of the Magnitsky Act. But could you just describe what that act says, what it does, and, and how it empowers governments like the United States, like the government of Canada, to seize the assets of you know bad guys abroad? So the Magnitsky Act is an act which names uh, corrupt foreign officials and does two things. It prevents them from ever entering the country, in, in your case, the United States, in our case, Canada. There are two other jurisdictions who have signed on and have versions of their own Magnitsky Act, that is uh, the UK and Estonia. So there are four in the, in the uh, mix. Estonia. So okay. Estonia, I, I, right. There you, you know, go. Yes. Estonia. No, no, no friend of, of Russian overreach. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but every country has its own version. So in the U S uh, it is an act that only covers, I believe individuals from Russia, whereas 
I mean, oh, no, I think I think I think here in the U.S. it was it was uh, amended a, a few years ago to include. It was more. amended. Yeah, yeah, but but initially we, we should say like initially this guy Magnitsky um, yeah. was a an accountant I believe uh, in Russia who was investigating corruption of Russian oligarchs, but ended up you know murdered in in prison. And uh, the initial piece of legislation, which I think it was like in 2012, would um, sort of uh, sanction uh, those found to be directly responsible for his death. But it's yeah. been. And it's been broadened, yeah. That was Serge Magnitsky, mm-hmm. and of course the 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 story, as documented by Bill Browder, is mm-hmm. is gripping in its detail and it's in its in the way it exposes corruption and oppression in in Russia. The Magnitsky Act in Canada always applied to uh, to corrupt foreign officials anywhere in the world. Uh, But here's what all Magnitsky Acts do. They freeze the assets. They do not seize them and redeploy them back to help uh, the people who were the victims. And what freezing does is it, it, it it, it ties up the assets, often for very, very long time. And meanwhile, countries who are who are trying to manage with an influx, an unexpected influx of millions of people into their countries. Think of Bangladesh from Myanmar. More than 920,000 Rohingya refugees are now in Cox's Bazar in Bangladesh. And Bangladesh is left coping with whatever little it has to spare, plus whatever little the UN and the UNHCR has to spare. Uh, So this act, let's call it the Magnitsky Plus, uh, would go the next step. It would not just freeze, it would seize and redeploy the assets back to the source country uh, or to another country or to another institution. And this would all be determined in, in the case of the Canadian law. If it is passed, it would be determined in the fullness of transparency by a Canadian court and not by politicians. Mm-hmm. So, so the court would be able to sort of adjudicate where the seized assets would go, whether it would go to like the UN Refugee Agency or to local NGOs working on the ground in places. Exactly. Um, and the Canadian court would uh, call witnesses. It would uh, give notice. It would do all the things that our system, which are not dissimilar uh, to uh, you know, liberal systems in the rest of the world would go through all the steps and processes mm-hmm. before it reaches a decision and would also outline in its decision exactly as you said how the money would be spent, how would it be accounted for, who would get it, etc., etc., etc. How um, much money are we talking about? Do you have a sense of how much in frozen assets Canada currently holds um, you know, for would be you know human rights you know abusers? around the world? We actually don't know because we publish the names of the officials who are on the frozen assets list, but we do not actually have a public registry of the value of their assets. Uh, So we know that, I mean, currently there are 72 plus individuals from a range of jurisdictions on the Canadian sanctions list. And by the way, uh, Canada, like other countries, has 
legislation uh, beyond Magnitsky legislation. There's the UN Sanctions Act. There are other acts that enable us to freeze the assets of individuals. But we don't know the value of their assets. In this bill, not only would we seize and redeploy, we would also have a public registry of the value of those assets. Uh So for the first time, we'd get to actually know. Now, you know, the government has different ways of knowing. So I'll I'll take us back to uh, a decade before when uh, the government of Muammar Gaddafi fell. We We knew at that time that Canada held $2.2 billion worth of Gaddafi's assets in Canada. And in government-to-government negotiations with the then Libyan government, we returned the money. There was no transparency. There were no conditions. We don't actually know exactly how the money was used. And we don't know, in fact, if it was corrupted again. Hmm. This bill, by making sure that there is a court order in the middle, or as a first step, to the seizure, we will provide the accountability and the transparency. And in some way, you know, there's a moral symmetry to this, I think, that is important to appreciate. If you steal money from your people and you then proceed to deprive them of their basic freedoms, there will be accountability. So when crafting this law, did you look to any other foreign governments that have similar laws on the books? Yes. And fascinatingly enough, we discovered a law in Switzerland. That's like the last Uh, place I would have thought. (laughs) Exactly. Or maybe the first place. Yeah, I suppose. Because of their reputation um, with the the Swiss bankers, Swiss bank accounts. You know, all of that. They probably had a reputational issue they were wanting to deal with. But in 2015, they enacted an act, it was called the Foreign Illicit Assets Act, which allowed for assets that were deposited in Switzerland by corrupt foreign officials uh, to be confiscated and restituted. And there is actually a case that I know of where Switzerland um, returned assets to Kazakhstan following a criminal bribery uh, case that was uh, decided on in Switzerland. And because they didn't want to return the money to Kazakhstan itself, they set up an independent nonprofit foundation hmm. to monitor the return of the assets. Mm, okay, so, and so, so this works. was involved. Yeah. And other NGOs were involved. So there is some precedent. There's some proof yeah. of concept. Yeah, proof of concept is that. So, so f- forgive me, um, sort of my my ignorance of the Canadian legislative process, and and uh, forgive me doubly for the fact that I actually am Canadian. Um, uh, so I, I, I should no know forgiveness. this. Blessings only for <laughs> okay. being a Canadian. <laughs> okay, uh, I've never lived there. I've never worked there, but I I, I am a citizen of, of Canada. I just don't know um, how a senator's proposal becomes a, a law. Can can you sort of talk me through the the process, the procedures? Um, how will what you have written uh, become legislation? And and sort of what are some of the political obstacles to its becoming uh, adopted? Uh, The way uh, legislation from a senator, and perhaps your listeners would appreciate that I'm not an elected official, Mm -hmm. I'm an appointed official, but I do have legislative making powers that have to be approved through the whole gamut of legislation making. So I've tabled this bill in the Senate. Um, It will 
hopefully, you know, go to committee in the Senate. It will come back from committee in the Senate after we've heard from witnesses, including human rights groups and, and you know, uh, ambassadors and foreign officials. When it comes back to the Senate after committee, we will debate it again. There may be amendments to it, and then hopefully it gets approved. If it gets approved, it has to then go over to the other uh, part of Parliament Hill. We are a bicameral um, uh, Parliament Hill here. So it would go to the House of Commons, which is the elected House, and would go through the same process again. Um, Tabling of the legislation by, by a member of the House of Parliament, second reading, committee, third reading, amendments, and final approval. So there are two very articulated separate processes in two separate chambers on Parliament Hill that go through this. And this is all, you know, part of our our system, uh, part of our constitution, and it assures uh, that nothing uh, in haste is done, that bills are are debated, are consulted on, that civil society and other organizations weigh in, and then it becomes law. So can you talk a, a little bit about maybe the broader politics of, of this? I mean, you know, you're proposing taking money out of the treasury, I, I have to imagine. Um, no, or I'm, I'm not proposing, okay. no. no not, oh, that's not, right, it's, it's frozen. Not a single dollar will come from our treasury okay. or from any other persons, any other jurisdiction's treasury. It will come from the corrupt foreign officials. So so there is money to be distributed. And whenever there is yeah. money to be distributed, there are constituencies that vie for a piece of that uh, pie uh, in any sort of political system. You know, that, that's sort of like a, 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 a given. So like, what are some of the broader political forces informing um, how this piece of legislation might proceed? Well, you're absolutely right. When anything, any anything worth any value is seized by a government, there are people who will line up. They may have a personal interest in it. They, you know, the the country where it was stolen from may have an interest in getting it back. Family members may lay a claim to it. So, so this is where the court. Uh, review will be incredibly useful. So there's a process issue here, but you asked a political issue. I believe uh, that like-minded jurisdictions, like, uh, you know, um, the people we are talking to, uh, hopefully in Germany and other parts, uh, Sweden, uh, Norway, hopefully the UK, will uh, will, uh, look at the broader political implications uh, for addressing uh, uh, displacement, which I know it displacement occurs in miles away, far away from our borders, but we are connected in a way we were never connected before. It does have implications. So it is in the political interest of, of Canada, at least, and I hope other countries to look at this legislation with a view of, from, from a view, not just of human rights legislation, but justice and accountability as well for the individuals who've stolen the money. I mean, what's interesting you know, to me about this, specifically for the purposes of supporting agencies and groups that um, focus on displacement issues is, you know, you're potentially talking about like a, a lot of money. I mean, earlier you said, you know, two 
billion dollars was you know returned yeah. to Libya was seized. Yeah. You also said we don't really know how much money Canada has in frozen assets of foreign corrupt um, people, but you know we do know that. I know, like I, I think the UN Refugee Agency's budget is something like seven billion dollars. So even like one billion dollars uh, from Canada alone is a gigantic sum of money for the 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 global refugee crisis. And uh, you know, one wonders if these chronically underfunded UN agencies and humanitarian organizations uh, might find this as like an innovative source of financing for their operations in the future. The World Bank has come up with an interesting statistic. There are roughly 20 to $40 billion worth of stolen money that can be traced back to corrupt public officials. Hmm. So that's a huge amount of money. If we get even $1 billion, I'm going to put, put that, uh, it, and, and provide it to the humanitarian relief agencies of the world who are never, ever able to reach 100% of their budget. The UNHCR has ever only been able to reach 60% of its budget because it is financed by voluntary contributions. Mm -hmm. And the, the displaced people of the world, I think, cannot simply sit around and wait for charity in a way. This is, in a sense, their money to help them in their moment of crisis. So um, what comes next? What should we around the world, you know, people around the world listen to this show? Um, what should we be looking at um, in the future when it comes to this piece of, of legislation? I think I would like to hope that the people in the world will think of, about it both aspirationally and pragmatically. Aspirationally, it brings, it provides justice justice to those who appear to act with immunity. Think of those generals in Myanmar, those warlords in South Sudan. They squirrel away millions of dollars. Their names are, are on our sanctions list, but we don't do anything with their money. On a pragmatic level, it gets money uh, to the agencies, to the NGOs, in one case, it could be the UN. In another case, it could be Medicines Sans Frontier, who are doing the work that is required to be done on the field to help the people who are impacted. So I'm hoping that people will think about it as a, as a, as a move uh, that is grounded in justice and accountability, but with a healthy dose of pragmatism attached to it. And, and as you said earlier, I mean, if Canada does adopt this, I have to imagine that other countries around the world would similarly want to model uh, that legislation. Precisely, Canada has, uh, you know, is is has a reputation of of, of being, uh, you know, some people call it the gold standard in these issues. But I think we have to keep uh, aspiring to look at new instruments, new ways, and new mechanisms of addressing a problem that is catastrophic lyric in its uh, proportion, 70 million displaced people in the world. There are 70 million reasons to do this and to do this, not just as individual nation states, which I'm proposing to do in Canada, but build a community around this, uh, this notion. And, and the proposal will always look different in different countries. There will always be some variation as there is with Mignitsky, but the intent should hold us together. 
well, thank you so much for your time, Senator. This is absolutely fascinating. I I, um, I love seeing these envelope-pushing pieces of legislation, and I'll be curious to see where this ends up. But thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, sir. I really appreciated it. Uh, all right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Senator Omidvar. So there's this uh, like joke in journalism circles. It's sort of like apocryphal by now, but the story goes that some editors and writers, I think it was like at the New Republic, were having a contest, sitting around the table, trying to think of the most boring headline they could. And the winner of the contest was the headline, Worthwhile Canadian Initiative. However, if there ever was a worthwhile Canadian initiative, it is the Frozen Assets Repurposing Act. Thanks all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.